Thank you so much for that. We're going to read about that very incident just now in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and reading at verse 8. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, at verse 8. And hear the Word of God. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ and Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What are we supposed to do? about Christmas. I'm not asking that in a general way in terms of what is society supposed to do about Christmas, but I'm asking it in terms of the church. What is the church supposed to do about Christmas? We, we may want to broaden the question a little bit. We may want to broaden it to include the whole season of Advent. I know that Presbyterians typically don't recognize Advent, unless you're in a radically enlightened Presbyterian church. But Advent, as you know, is a period in, it's the very beginning of the church year, it's a period that is designed to remind us that there were those, even back in Jesus' time, who had been waiting patiently for the arrival of the Messiah. Luke particularly names some of these people, Zechariah and Elizabeth and uh, Mary herself and Simeon and Anna and others, of course, who were quietly waiting for the consolation of Israel, uh, which meant the coming of the Messiah. And we today, we are waiting people. It is a definition and feature of Christian people that we are a pilgrim people waiting, as they were waiting for Christ's first coming, we are waiting for Christ's second coming. When every eye will see him, not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by, but we shall see him but in heaven, set at God's right hand on high. We are a waiting people. Now, many church people, though, see Christmas <clears throat> as an opportunity to do stuff, to do good deeds, to seize what are sometimes called gospel opportunities, an opportunity, if you, if you will, to uh, take the season and to use it as an opportunity to, to get people under the sound of the gospel. Those are both good things. Don't for one minute think I don't think that. But it seems to be using Christmas and missing what, what I want to call the weight of Christmas. I've already talked about 
weight in the sense of W-A-I-T. I'm now talking about weight in the sense of W-E-I-G-H-T. The heaviness, the, uh, the weightiness of Christmas. This is grown-up stuff. This is grown-up theology at Christmas time. This is not the kind of uh, ginger pop of, of truths of the gospel or, or, or whatever. This is the heavy meat of Christian understanding. You see, Christmas is more than a cosmic event. Christmas really goes into the category alongside the, the transfiguration of Jesus, which the disciples saw on the mountain, or, or the resurrection of Jesus, or the ascension of Jesus, or what's described in the book of Revelation as the exaltation of Jesus to the throne of God. This is a celebration of a divine event, a divine event. And in Luke's gospel, we have the weight, the weightiness of Christmas highlighted right at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly existence. Luke 2 begins with locating the history of Jesus' existence as a man, locating it in the reign of Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was the the governor of Syria. So that's the period of time in which it happened. Locating it at Bethlehem in Judea, the home of David, the promised place where the deliverer who would come to Israel would be born. And his earthly beginnings are described in very prosaic terms. Uh, we, read, we read earlier than the passage we've read today, we read these words, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, that's baby cloths, and laid him in a manger. It's a description of a normal, natural birth. Though there was, as we know, a supernatural conception in Mary's womb, there was a truly normal, natural birth. Mary was his natural mother. Insofar as Jesus is a human being, he derived his humanity entirely from her. Insofar as Jesus is the Son of God and derives his human nature from Mary, we can truly say of Mary that she is the, the Greek word is theotokos, the mother of God. That's precisely what Elizabeth, her cousin, said when Mary visited her. The mother of my Lord has come to me. And the Christian church in all of its branches has affirmed that as a key understanding. You do not understand who Jesus is unless you understand Mary as the mother of God. We'll see how that works out in a moment. What we are told, though, in that little statement about the birth is that he was the firstborn son Now, that expression does not signify one in a series. We're not to take from that expression, the firstborn, that there were other sons who were born of Mary. 
In fact, it's been the position of the Christian church from the very beginning through the Reformation and up until the 18th century that Mary did not have any more children, that she remained a virgin. John Calvin took that position. Martin Luther took that position. The Reformers generally took that position. Only in the 18th century is that position questioned. I'm not telling you today what position I take, but I have to tell you that that's been the understanding of the church through most of the church's existence. The word firstborn comes from the Old Testament. In Exodus, for example, God says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, man or beast is mine, says the Lord. In Romans chapter 8, Christ is called the firstborn among many brethren. That is that Jesus is the head of a new humanity. He is the first. Just as he will be the first to be raised from the dead, and many others will follow in resurrection from the dead, so Jesus is the first of a new humanity. Colossians says he is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This idea of the firstborn derives from Old Testament prophecy, and it takes on a cosmic dimension. Because Jesus is the first, the first thought in God's mind, the first uh, differentiation, if we, it's a bad word to use theologically, but all creation is ordered towards him. All creation proceeds from him. He is the beginning in the sense of the creator, and he is the goal of the new creation uh, begun by his resurrection from the dead. He, as the one who was born of the virgin, is responsible for those of us who are born again by the Holy Spirit and are incorporated into the family of God. Jesus draws people then into his life, as many as received him, to then gave he the power to become sons, daughters of God. Well, that's the introduction, really, to this section. What I want to look at are the three movements in this little scenario that we've read about this morning. And the first is the theophany, the theophany. I hope you know that the word theophany simply means an appearance of theos, of God, an appearance, an appearing of God, a revelation of God. So whereas the story of the birth of Jesus is simple, brief, and unspectacular, with nothing miraculous about it after all, we remind ourselves that what is extraordinary about the birth of that baby is that the person the baby is, is the eternal Son of God being born as a Jewish boy of the house of David in the little town of Bethlehem, wrapped in baby cloths and laid in a makeshift crib. 
But meanwhile, and this is where the scene changes, and we find ourselves on the fields where there were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by nights. That means, by the way, that these men were about a mile or just a little bit more than a mile away from the events that were occurring, of which they knew nothing at all. In a dramatic contrast to the homely scene of the baby being cared for by its parents, there is this theophany, a divine event, on a par with such events we find in the book of Isaiah or in the books of Moses or at the transfiguration of Jesus in later life. The defining revelation of God as it is in Christ is in his humiliation and in his resurrection. That's the defining moment. If you read the scriptures, you'll find that that's the big thing that that helps us to look at all of scripture now from a different perspective. The humiliation of Jesus leading to the cross. The resurrection of Jesus, which demonstrates not only his pre-existence as the Son of God, not only his earthly existence as the Son of Man, but his glorified existence now as the exalted Lord in a definite, comprehensive, and decisive way. Here in this little passage, we see both the exaltation of Jesus and the humiliation of Jesus. You see, this appearance of the angels is a revelation of the glory of the Lord. The Lord, that is the Lord God of Israel, is invisible. He is immaterial. That is, he is not made up of matter of any sort. Therefore, you cannot see God. But God creates means by which we creatures may see him. And you can see some of this in the, in the narrative we have before us, these creaturely actions. There are angels, and we're able to see these angels. There's this bright light that pierces the darkness of the night. The glory of the Lord makes us consider the majesty of God. And so we, we think of what Isaiah saw. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, what does Isaiah see? He sees the glory of the Lord. This is what he tells us. He saw the Lord sitting on a high throne, high and lifted up. He heard the angels, the seraphim, calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He saw the glory of God. He heard the angels of God singing about the glory of God. And on this night of nights, these humble shepherds saw what Isaiah saw. They saw saw the glory of the Lord shining around them. Now, when Isaiah had the vision, the effect of that vision on Isaiah was to make him feel dread right through to his bones. Woe is me, he said, for I am undone, I'm lost, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the effect of this theophany on the shepherds is precisely the same. They were filled with fear, our version says. They were terribly frightened, another translation puts it. They were terrified, says another translation. And yet, here's the thing. 
When John's gospel is narrating the account of what Isaiah saw, it says this. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. The glory of God is the glory of Jesus. To see the glory of God is to see Jesus not in his incarnate state in the manger, but to see Jesus in his eternal state as God within the Holy Trinity. The undivided majesty and splendor The intact glory of the Holy Trinity. That's what these shepherds saw. They had a revelation of the glory of the Lord. Including the one who had taken on humanity in the cradle. In other words, having taken on humanity, he's not limited to the cradle. He exists as God everywhere in everything, over everything, invisibly, infinitely, eternally, without any change, without any change in his Godhood. It's a theophany. It's an appearance of God. Secondly, mystery. Theophany, mystery. The angel said to him, to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ and Lord in the city of David. The story of this baby boy starts with glory, revealed before the eyes of these shepherds that night. And what is a mystery and what is counterintuitive is that the glory of God, the bright Shekinah glory of God's presence in the tabernacle, in the temple, was now shining upon, we're told, upon these ordinary, unhallowed, unordained men. These shepherds. Uh, People criticize them. I mean, Religious leaders, the clergy, criticized the shepherds because the shepherds couldn't leave their sheep and come to the synagogue. They had to stay with their sheep. They had to guard their sheep. If they left, the sheep, wolves would get them, thieves would get them. It was their job. And of course, therefore, the religious looked down on these men as secularists and despised them a little bit. But God here appears to them. You might think, why Why did God not give a theophany to the priests and the, and the religious teachers in Jerusalem. Well, he gave them a chance. There were wise men who came from the east looking for Jesus, who had seen a star arising in the sky, and they came looking for him in Jerusalem, as you would imagine they would look for him. And uh, they were asking around about him. They came, and eventually it came to Herod's view. Herod got in his theologians and his teachers and the religious leaders, and he asked them, if the Messiah is going to be born, where is he going to be born? And they told them straight up, well, Bethlehem in Judea. They knew 
And we don't read of anyone, not one, not one of those theologians, not one of those clergy, not one of those religious leaders who came to check out the story. When God appeared, he appeared to these men, these shepherds. And the angel's message confirms the message of the theophany itself and uh, explains this new thing that is happening. Because the child who is born is given three, a threefold name or description. He's the Savior. There's the first thing. He's the Savior. People understood that. If you go outside of Judaism and you look at the Middle Eastern, Greco-Roman world of the time, you find people were looking for a Savior. Some were looking to Isis to be their Savior. Isis is the God who takes the, uh, the evil stars in the sky and, and, and reigns them in and ex- exercises power over them. There was Asclepius, the God of health and healing. Many looked to Asclepius to be the Savior of the world from death and destruction. Others looked towards Caesar, the emperor, to be their savior. In fact, uh, Caesar described himself as the Soter, the savior. But here in Luke's gospel, this word savior has nothing to do with Isis or Asclepius or the emperor. It has its roots, of course, in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah predicts that one day, one day, The time will come when people shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. The glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Now just note that this word Lord, as it's used in the Old Testament, you will see it is in uppercase letters. And basically that's because we don't really know how to pronounce this name. When God revealed himself to Moses and Moses was wanting to know God's name, God prevaricated a little bit. He, he, he gave him some information about himself before he gave him the name. And he said to Moses, I am that I am. And then he said to Moses, you go to them and you tell them that I am has sent me. And then he gives Moses the name The Jews never knew how to pronounce that name. We don't know how to pronounce that name. We don't know what the name means. It has no meaning because it's a name. It's God's own special name. Uh, we, we, We mark its presence in the Old Testament by having these uppercase letters, L O R D. Martin Luther, when he was, right, when he was translating the, the famous and uh, overwhelmingly probably one of the best versions of the Bible ever, the German Bible, in fact, Luther actually created the German language by, by writing this translation of the Bible. He was consistent. He not only marked out the use of this personal name in the Old Testament, he did the same thing in the New Testament. And it's right here in this passage. In Isaiah 35, they shall see the glory of, the word the isn't there, of Lord, the unspeakable name, 
the majesty of our God. Now, this unpronounceable name has no meaning, as I said. Uh, And in Greek, the word for Lord was used to translate it. Many of the ancient uh, manuscripts put it in capital letters or they put other letters in. We, We sometimes... For those of you who are into the languages, you know that it's, it's transliterated in English in four letters, Y-H-Y-W. No, the other way around. <laughs> Y-W-Y-H. Because we don't really know how to pronounce it. We some think it's Yahweh, some think it's Jehovah, but they're, they're making it up as they go along. So this is the name for God. And it says there in Isaiah 35 that it is he who will come to save you. And Jesus refers to Isaiah 35 when he says in Luke, later on in Luke chapter 7, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. What was to happen? The word of the Lord to Isaiah makes it clear. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. He himself will come and save you. He himself will come and save you. So when Jesus is explaining to the followers of John the Baptist, what he's come to do, he says to them, you go back and you say to John the Baptist, what you've seen and heard, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the leper is cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news brought to them. All of that language comes from Isaiah 35. God himself will come and save you. And these will be the marks. Richard Hayes puts it like this. These very motifs referenced in Isaiah 35 are evidence that your God will come and save you. Jesus is claiming to be the Savior God who comes to end the exile and to bring Israel home. And that's a consistent message of the Old Testament. Who is the Savior? Only God is the Savior. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, Isaiah uh, 43. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me, Isaiah 45. Turn to me and all the ends of the earth and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. God is the Savior. And Jesus' name, Jesus, Yeshua, captures the unpronounceable name of God, And the word Savior puts them together. He is the Savior. 
So he's the Savior, he's the Messiah. That is, the Christ, Messiah, was a title from the Old Testament which had divine names and titles associated with it. It means the anointed one who will be descended from David and born in David's city of Bethlehem. Psalm 2 comes to mind. He is the anointed one who is also eternally the Son of God, who is always with God in the eternal today of God's life in Psalm 2. It's in Isaiah, however, that we find that this one who's to come to save, that is, God the Savior, is going to come in the form of the God, the Spirit-anointed servant. Jesus started his public ministry by going to the synagogue in uh, Nazareth, and uh, he opened the book at Isaiah 61. And he read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Salvation from God will come through this sent servant. In order for God to become a servant, God has to become a servant. He has to take on human nature. The historic role of God as Savior is joined and fulfilled in this sent one, this Christ who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus himself is the saving presence of the Lord God of Israel because he is the one truly anointed Messiah, which leads us to the third title, Lord. There is no the. There is no definite article in the Greek before this name, Lord. Luke is very deliberately following the Old Testament usage. This is not a title of God, as we would say the king. This is the name of God, Lord. The unpronounceable, undefinable name of the holy proper, a proper name of God, which is known as the Tetragrammaton. Those four letters. He will turn away many of the people of Israel to the Lord, to God, to him, their God. Elizabeth's words, why is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So the word word Lord then doesn't describe Jesus, it names him. Now, Now, I want you to look at the passage again and watch this. The angel, an angel of Lord, appears to them. The glory of Lord surrounds them. The angel announces the birth of him who is Savior and Christ and Lord. But now, amazingly, that secret, proper name of God, the God of Israel, now has two references. It not only refers to the Holy Trinity, the one Lord to whom belong the angels and the glory, but it also belongs to this little baby thing that has been born of a woman and wrapped in baby cloths and laid in a manger. That's the mystery of God's love for you this morning. It is that God himself... 
has assumed our human nature. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. And that brings us to the third thing, the theophany, the mystery, and the gloria. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. This little incident begins with the heavens opening, with the glory of the Lord being revealed to the shepherds. In other words, right from the very beginning, the whole incident of Christmas is lifting up our, our eyes, whereas at Christmas we want to do good things and we want to reach people with the good news of the gospel. Those are good things, but they're at the horizontal level. They're good things. We have to do them. I'm, I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm asking what the big reason for Christmas is. And here's where it lies. We are forced to look vertically, upwards, Upwards towards God. That's what it means to worship. To worship is to lift up your eyes. To worship is to lift up your hearts. It is to lift up your voices. It's to get away from the things of earth and to start Realizing that these issues have to do with the one who dwells above us. Above, did you know, is an attribute of God. He is above us. He is the highest. That's the subject. That's why in the chorus here, the the singing resorts to praising God in the highest. Because God, who is the, the highest is the main subject of all of Scripture. And he is the great goal of all of our lives. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it's along this vertical axis that the movement of God takes place as angels descend to reveal this effect to these shepherds. But supremely, as God the Son descends from the highest to the lowest. And it's to be found in that little cradle in a manger. In Acts chapter 10, Peter picks up this, the, our narrative here when he says to a Roman centurion, God sent word to the sons of Israel, meaning the shepherds, by proclaiming the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ. This one is Lord of all. Yet this amazing declaration resides in Israel's own confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, Lord, our God, Lord is one. Jesus Christ is the only one who can be called Lord of all. In Psalm 118, we read this, Blessed is the coming one 
the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And as it happens, Jesus is both the coming one and the Lord embodied now that we might see the invisible. Later on in Luke, the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is he, the coming one, the king, in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We start at Christmas with the highest. What should we be doing at Christmas? We should be worshiping, worshiping. We can invite our friends in to see us and hear us worshiping. But Christmas is about lifting up our eyes, lifting up our hearts, lifting up our voices, seeing the heavens bright with the light of the glory of God and understanding that that brightness, that glory now resides in our Lord Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, ascended up to heaven, seated in the throne of God. It blows away, blows away all of our little minor preoccupations. It blows away all of the stuff that we have to soak up from a world system that's throwing all kinds of trash out there in the days in which we live. It enables us to rise up in our hearts and our minds and to be irradiated ourselves with the glory of this one who has come, our Lord and Savior. And you may not be a Christian this morning, and a lot of this, therefore, will not make much sense to you. But let this make sense to you. There is a God, and he has gone to infinite lengths to build a relationship with people like you and me. From the highest to the lowest, from the richest to the poorest, from the perfect beatitude of God's life to the brokenness of ours, that he might lift us to where he is. Father, we pray that today you would help us to find you as we seek you and to rest in your love and find joy in your presence. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.